Well, I haven't preached from the book of Acts in a long time, and so I'm eager to do that tonight from Acts chapter 28. And we're going to look from verses 17 all the way through the end of the chapter, the end of the book, actually. And while you're turning to Acts 28, I want to give you a little update on just some things that are happening in the Church of Jesus Christ and other parts of the world. Uh, recently, one Christian ministry that ministers to Muslims in the Middle East, they reported a surge in conversions to Christ among Muslims that they have ministered to and, and spoken with, specifically because of war in Syria and, and all of the displaced peoples in, from Iraq and Iran and Syria and all of these things that are happening that, that we see in the news all the time, but it's having a gospel impact. Uh, Muslim refugees are coming to faith in Christ, according to this source, quote, in unprecedented numbers. One refugee woman testified, she said, the biggest change in my life is that I know now that I have eternal life. My name is written in the book of life. God gave me peace and he gave me joy. Life is beautiful, even in the midst of all the trouble. And this is a woman who's been thrown out of her country, thrown out of her home. Her family is Shiite Muslim. And if they found out that she had come to faith in Christ, they said that she says that they would kill her. They would murder her. Her husband has been beaten multiple times by Muslims to the point that part of his eye is, is not working anymore. He's been completely rejected by his parents. She and her husband are both refugees in Lebanon, but they've been using their time there to share the gospel of Christ with all of the refugee children that are there and to, to develop children's ministries in these refugee camps and so forth. One of the refugees in one of the camps testified, Thank God for the war in Syria. It brought me to Jesus. And all throughout church history, just like is happening right now, God has used suffering, he has used war, he has used trials and pain for his own gospel purposes to further his kingdom in a way that we never would imagine, we never would have come up with. And that's exactly the situation that we're really joining tonight with the Apostle Paul as he is under arrest and we're looking at Paul now as we continue our series, Strength in the Desert. And what we've been examining very simply is how saints in the Bible respond faithfully to times of having to wait on the Lord and be patient with the Lord when we don't seem to see his hand moving. And as we've said, when God seems to have gone radio silent, when we're not hearing from him, feeling as though God isn't doing anything. And so we've been trying to glean some lessons to teach us how to have strength in the desert when we, we need to wait and so the Apostle Paul's lesson to us tonight is be faithful to the gospel while you wait. Be faithful to the gospel while you wait. Now, you'll recall that we've already visited with Paul and Silas when they were in a Philippian prison. Now we move to Paul in a Roman prison. He had quite the record. He was going to prison all the time, it seems. Well, he was arrested in A.D. 60, and he was sent to Rome for trial with Caesar himself, the infamous Nero. And as we'll see, what Paul is going to do is he's going to make his primary concern, not his own difficult circumstances, not the injustice of what's happening to him, but the gospel. Wherever he is, he makes the gospel his concern. And so this evening, I'd like to just walk through three gospel opportunities that the Apostle Paul has and then we're going to glean some thoughts for our own lives. It's going to take us a while to get to the application portion, but you really need to see the detail of this story. So three gospel opportunities. Paul's example of being faithful to the gospel while you wait. His first gospel opportunity 
happens with fellow Jews who are unsaved. These are unsaved Jews as he's arriving in Rome. Now, as we pick up our story in verse 17, Paul has come to what is essentially the capital of the world at this point in history. I mean, in reality, there's no better place on earth in Paul's day for, uh, to launch a campaign for the gospel of Christ since the entire Roman Empire came in and out of Rome for various reasons at various times. There were already believers in Christ in Rome. In fact, Paul had written to them already a number of years earlier. In his letter to the Romans, he said with great hope in Romans 1.15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And so it was always Paul's desire to come to Rome, what was really becoming the, the capital of Christianity as well. But instead of coming as a free apostle to minister to the church and to proclaim the gospel wherever and whenever and however he liked he was brought humiliatingly as a prisoner, guarded, limited, and unable to do what he wanted. Now, he wasn't under severe arrest. He wasn't put in a true prison. He was essentially under house arrest at his own expense, and he was to await an audience with Caesar, which meant he could literally be there for years. They, they didn't have any laws really protecting you from being uh, bound for any period of time. It could be years before a court date was actually set for him. Now, normally, Paul's practice in any city that he traveled to would be to go and first find the synagogue. He would find the synagogue in order to minister the gospel to the Jews that were there. And in fact, Rome had at least 10 synagogues and about 50,000 Jews. And so at this time, this would have been a great place to come and share the gospel with his fellow Jews. But he's under house arrest and as a member of the sect of the Pharisees, he could actually command quite an audience and command some attention. So he sent word to the local Jewish leaders, some of the synagogue leaders, and asked them to come visit with him. And he made a short introductory speech to them. And we see this speech beginning in verse 17 through verse 20. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers... Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. So, very clearly, Paul wasn't anti-Jew. He wasn't anti-Israel. He was very much a, a faithful Jew. In fact, he had written to the Romans in Romans chapter 9 that he loved Israel so much that he would be willing to give up his own salvation to guarantee that all the Jews would be saved. He, he loved his people and so he makes sure to tell them that he hadn't spoken against his people. He had not spoken against the Jewish way of life. He had been faithful to his people. But because the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem were continuing to try to persecute Paul, though they couldn't make any charges against him stick, Paul had to appeal to Caesar, as was his right as a Roman citizen. And now, to, to get us to this point, we kind of have to be reminded why Paul was arrested in the first place. The book of Acts is 28 chapters long, as you can see. It's the only Holy Spirit-inspired history of the early church of Jesus Christ. And it can be organized or understood in a variety of ways. And one of the ways to understand the book of Acts 
is to see that there are basically two main human characters. Chapters 1 through 12 essentially deal with the Apostle Peter and his ministry. And then chapters 13 all the way to the end of the book deal with Paul. And so we have Peter as the highlight and Paul as the highlight. And and I wish I had time to go through this, but essentially their ministries parallel one another if you make a comparison of those two parts of the book. And so the Apostle Paul is highlighted for 16 chapters. But to give you an idea of how important this arrest is, half of that material, eight chapters, is devoted to this arrest. It's, It's a huge chunk of the book. And so it's immensely important to the history of the church since... Luke, Paul's ministry companion and the human author of Acts, he devotes so much detail to Paul's arrest and his subsequent trials and imprisonment in Rome. So why does Luke devote so much time in this inspired text? Why does the Holy Spirit want all of the details of this arrest and the trials to be recorded? Because it was all part of God's sovereign plan to get Paul to Rome to get him there. Not the way Paul wanted to go to Rome. Probably nobody would say, you know, I think I'll travel to Rome and I think I'll go in chains. And I think I'll make it a terrible time. But it was the way God wanted Paul to get to Rome. And as we're going to see, it was exactly right. It was the perfect way. So we have to go all the way back to chapter 21 to track how Paul got here in the first place. So turn back with me to to Acts 21. And we'll begin in verse 27. Paul had come to Jerusalem to visit the church there. He was bringing a large collection, a large amount of money for the church of Jerusalem to help them in a time of need. He had been traveling to various churches and collecting money for this moment. And he he brought the money. And as a faithful Jew who worshipped the true Messiah, he used the temple in Jerusalem for its rightful purpose, and that was to worship God through Christ. As a matter of fact, he was keeping the law of God regarding a vow he had made. He clearly understood that the law had been fulfilled in Christ already, but he continued keeping certain aspects of the law either to not offend new Jewish believers and not be a stumbling block to them, or perhaps, as some commentators believe, as a memorial to the sacrifice of Christ. We're not really told, but we do know this. The Apostle Paul was keeping a vow according to the law. Now, is he going backwards? Is he suddenly revoking his belief in the grace of Christ? Of course not. Uh, by now, he had already written Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians, and Romans, which really contains some of Paul's greatest assertions that the law is now finished. And so he certainly wasn't denying the completed work of Christ at all. Now, Luke doesn't elaborate on the nature of Paul's vow, but we do know one possible reason that he was keeping this vow, and it has to do with his attitude toward evangelism his attitude toward anybody with whom he would love to share the gospel. And we find this attitude in 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 23. You don't have to turn there, just listen. This is his attitude toward evangelism. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. And so when Paul comes to Jerusalem, the capital of the world for Jews, of course he's going to He's going to obey the law. He's going to not be an offense to them. 
And so here Paul is. He's in Jerusalem. He's here to bless the new church. He's come to the temple. And we pick up the story in Acts 21, 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Now, the Jews from Asia, these are people who knew Paul. He had already been on missionary journeys all through Asia Minor, and they were there, and they knew who he was, and they're going to stir up trouble for him. In verse 28, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. That's a lie, by the way. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And basically now a riot breaks out over Paul's arrest. Roman soldiers had to come and essentially save Paul's life. Verse 32 he at once took soldiers. This is the tribune, the tribune of the cohort. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So now Paul is arrested essentially for his own safety and to stop a riot and to give everybody time to investigate what's actually going on here. The mob was so violent so aggressive that later in the chapter it says that the soldiers literally had to carry Paul back to the soldiers' barracks where they would keep him under guard. And now the tribune in charge interviews Paul, and amazingly, Paul asked for permission to address the crowd, to talk to the very people that had been against him. And so Paul was brought outside the steps of the, of the barracks. The people got quiet to listen to him. And in a very sensitive, smart, and kind move, he spoke to them in Hebrew. He addressed them in the language of the Bible. And all through Acts 22, from verses 1 through 21, Paul gives his salvation testimony. He tells of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He confessed that he had been part of the murder of Stephen and that he had repented and he urged the crowd to repent as well and to come to faith in Christ. And this is what's phenomenal. Paul had just narrowly escaped death at the hands of this same crowd. And now he's under arrest because of the treachery and the lies of a, of a Jewish crowd. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? And yet, what was his first move? His first move was to ask permission to share the gospel with the crowd that was trying to kill him. He wanted them to know the truth. And as you read the speech in, Genesis, in, in Acts 22, rather, it's just so moving. It's so compassionate. It's so warm. But just as Jesus had told his disciples that the world would hate anyone who loved him, look with me at Acts 22, verse 22. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. This isn't just let's have a religious discussion or disagreement. This is we don't think you have the right to breathe. You don't have the right to, to live. And so, per normal procedure, the Romans set out to torture Paul by flogging him while they interrogated him to find out what was going on. That was just their normal procedure. And just when the soldiers got their whips ready, chapter 22, verse 25, but when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, and I love this, I almost want to put in a hmm, 
Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. It was illegal to flog a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. In other words, you're actually the foreigner here, Mr. Tribune. I'm a real Roman. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. You are not even supposed to, to chain a Roman citizen. And this could be the penalty of death if you abuse that right. Now, because he's a Roman citizen, this began a long process of hearings and trials. Paul was brought to the Jerusalem council, and, and funny enough, knowing that there were on the council both Sadducees and Pharisees, two different Jewish sects who disagreed about much, he managed to split them, and he purposefully got them in an argument because they disagree about the resurrection. And he immediately said, I was arrested because of the resurrection. That's hilarious. And they got into an argument, but putting myself in Paul's shoes, I imagine this must have been very confusing, very frightening for Paul. I mean, he came to Jerusalem in victory. He had, he had come to Jerusalem with a large sum of money collected from the various churches, particularly from the church at Corinth, who had given him a large sum. And he was here to bless the church at Jerusalem, and all of a sudden he finds himself in deep legal trouble because of false rumors and lies, things that are not true. But Christ himself appears to Paul, and he gives him the reason that he was going through all this. We see in chapter 23, verse 11. Chapter 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. I can't speak for you, but I think it would be great if the Lord would appear to me on occasion and tell me the reason I'm going through something for a trial or having to wait on him. But the reality is, is that the Lord doesn't have to do that because chapter 23, verse 11 proves that there's always a reason for everything he's doing. Just because he doesn't tell you what it is doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Paul's experience proves that our job is to trust the Lord through it. And to just wait and let it be okay. That, that God never does anything without a purpose. He, he doesn't just say, you know, I'm in the mood to just hammer this guy for the next five years. I think I'm going to do that. There's always a reason. And you'll notice that according to Jesus Christ, Paul's suffering really wasn't about Paul at all. It had to do with spreading the gospel. That's what it was about. Now, just to speed things up a little bit, the next day... Over 40 Jews conspired to assassinate Paul, but the plot was found out, so the tribune got together nearly 500 soldiers to escort the Apostle Paul to the governor of Judea, to a guy named Felix in Caesarea. The high priest and some of the Jewish leaders, they came along, they came to appear as witnesses against Paul, and Paul himself gave his defense in chapter 24, beginning in verse 10. He proclaimed the gospel of Christ to Felix, the governor, and Felix was interested he, he had some curiosity. In fact, chapter 24, verse 22 says, But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off. In other words, saying, we're not going to decide this in one day. Let's, let's slow down for a while. 
He postponed the trial so that he and his Jewish wife could listen to Paul and learn from him. By the way, they were also hoping that Paul would bribe him to let him go and make everybody happy. But to delay things even further, while Paul was still imprisoned in Caesarea and speaking to Felix on a daily basis, Felix's term as governor came to an end. And now a guy named Festus took over, and to do him a favor, Felix just left Paul in prison. So God used Festus to keep Paul from yet another assassination plot by the Jews in chapter 25, and he began yet another trial. And the trial was going nowhere, and the Jews were continuing to hound and hound and hound, and so eventually Paul took the nuclear option legally. He said, I appeal to Caesar. And as a Roman citizen, that stopped everything. And he was to be then transported to Rome to eventually appear before Caesar. But there had to be a step between those two steps and between that next step. And so Paul was brought before the next highest authority, King Agrippa, who was sort of the king over all the governors in the region. Again, he defended himself. He proclaimed the gospel. He gave a salvation testimony yet again. He proclaimed Christ as Lord. And in fact, Agrippa was disturbed by what Paul said because Paul made a bold call to Agrippa. He proclaimed the gospel to him and then he cornered him. He said, essentially, what are you going to do about this? Look with me at Acts 26, beginning at verse 27. What a gospel call. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Is one little caveat. And here's the sovereignty of God at work. The Apostle Paul, so concerned even for the life of his accuser, so concerned for the souls of those around him, The irony here is that Paul's defense to Agrippa was successful. Agrippa believed him. One small problem. Verse 32, Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Oh, can I take it back? Can we just stop right now? That's the sovereignty of God. Chapter 27 goes into great detail about Paul's sea voyage to Rome. It gives even the name of the centurion that was assigned to take Paul and other prisoners to Rome, a guy by the name of Julius. It even names which, which cohort he was a part of. And we learn that Julius liked Paul a lot, and in fact, even protected him. He was friendly with him. We learn of Paul's shipwreck and landing on the island of Malta and having to spend all winter there to wait for decent sailing weather again. And then Paul finally made it to Rome. Now, as I read from chapters 21, 27 all the way through this point, I sort of wonder if God wanted Paul to proclaim the gospel in Rome, why not just get him a plane ticket to go there and save all of this trouble? Why the arrest? Why the trials? Why the shipwreck? Why the delay? Why travel for months? Well, the text doesn't answer that question for us, but we do know this. We do know that it must be important because the Holy Spirit has inspired every little detail about this. Nearly eight full chapters on the story that God does everything in his way, in his time, at his discretion for his own reasons. And so we let that be okay. Now Paul has come to Rome. He has gathered with the Jewish leaders. And in verse 20, he's rightly 
assess the reason he's in chains. He's in chains, he says, for the hope of Israel. Paul had spoken of hope in the Lord all throughout his trials after his arrest. He continued to refer to this hope, and it had a a sub-theme that went with it. Acts 23, verse 6, It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Acts 24, beginning in verse 14, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And before King Agrippa in Acts 26, beginning in verse 6, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Now what's the sub-theme? Every time Paul refers to hope, he is referring either to individual resurrection or national resurrection. That is the Christian's hope. That's what sets us apart from everyone else. And Paul directly associates the hope of resurrection with a person that he calls the hope of Israel. And this person, of course, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, and it reflected his firm belief that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel who will return someday. He will establish himself as the King of Israel and the Lord of all the nations. And so in this, in this first gospel opportunity... The Apostle Paul has definitely piqued the interest of his fellow Jews in Rome. He said something that they're highly interested in and highly invested in. He's made a reference to the Messianic kingdom. And so, in chapter 28, verse 21, And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you to see what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So right now they're neutral. They've heard about this sect of Judaism. It's what they thought it was, often called the way. They didn't know they were called Christians yet. They knew they were called followers of Christ. They've heard bad things about the way, but they've not heard anything particularly bad about Paul. So they said, we're we're kind of neutral right now. We want to hear about this. And so that brings us to Paul's second gospel opportunity. Second gospel opportunity, verse 23. When they appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So his evangelistic strategy was to reason with them from the scriptures that they already believed. They already believed in the veracity of the word of God, and to talk to them about something that they all agreed upon, and that is the kingdom. They all agreed that a Messiah needed to come and to take over the world and to not only be the king of Israel, but to be the king of the earth. They were all on the same page with this. What they didn't understand is that Messiah had already come, and he wasn't coming just to take over the world. He was coming to create kingdom citizens and to forgive the sins of those who would come to faith in him. He proclaimed Christ from the Torah, the Pentateuch, the law of Moses, and from the prophets of the Old Testament, which Jesus himself said all of them testify about him. And so Luke includes this little phrase here, which really is a bombshell phrase, testifying to the kingdom of God. 
This is loaded with meaning, and it shows that Paul's gospel was detailed. It was a thorough gospel. Paul's gospel was not, Jesus wants to be your friend, or ask Jesus to come into your heart. When you talk about the kingdom of God, you're talking about the gospel in its fullness, in its glory. To the Jew, as it should be to us, the idea of the kingdom of God had major implications for eschatology, for end times of those things that God has ordained for the future. Now, certainly the kingdom of God includes and is based upon and and founded upon the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the means that God will gather to himself kingdom citizens saved by faith in the Son of God. But really looking at the details of the coming of the Messiah on earth, that's the kingdom. And so Paul is arguing that the Jews needed to worship Jesus because he is the king. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And in Luke and Acts, both written by by Dr. Luke here, the kingdom is clearly a future concept. It's something yet to be. And it motivates the lost soul. It motivates you. Be a part of the kingdom. Don't get left out. Don't get left behind. And we can go all the way back to the beginning of of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, the very last topic that Jesus taught to his disciples before ascending to heaven was the coming kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, the very last interchange, the very last question that the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus essentially told them, I'm not going to tell you when it's going to happen, which, by the way, implies very strongly that it's going to happen. Acts 1.6 is very difficult for those to get away from if you believe that Israel is not going to be restored nationally. Jesus said it was. He just said, I'm not going to tell you when. Acts 8, verse 12. Philip the evangelist preached good news, quote, about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Those two go together. Believe on Christ so that you can be in the kingdom. Acts 14 ends with a summary of Paul's first missionary journey in verse 22, that they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. Acts 19 records that Paul came to Ephesus. He went to the synagogue and, quote, for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. It's It's a marvelous evangelistic focus. A kingdom is coming. Do you want to be part of it or not? If you want to be part of it, Christ is the only way because he's the king. Acts 20, verse 25, Paul describes his own preaching as proclaiming the kingdom. That's what he did. And that's just Acts. Luke's gospel is saturated in future kingdom teaching, which is all based in the Old Testament, all based in what's already been written. And just to give you a quick list, Christ will reign over his kingdom forever. This is all in Luke. Jesus said he came to preach the good news of the kingdom. Jesus taught, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom. Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom of God. He said that true believers, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. He sent out his disciples to proclaim the kingdom of God. He said that anyone who is hesitant to come to Christ is unfit for the kingdom of God. Jesus said that anywhere the gospel is preached, the kingdom has come near. That Jesus taught us to pray to the Father, may your kingdom come. We're exhorted in Luke 12 to seek the kingdom as opposed to earthly things. He told parables which he began, what is the kingdom of God like? 
He said that all the prophets and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will all be gathered together in the kingdom. He said it's difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom because they're too self-satisfied. He said that to enter the kingdom, you had to be utterly helpless and weak as a child. He promised that whatever you give up in suffering to be part of the kingdom, if you're rejected by family or you lose property or you lose anything, you'll be taken care of in the kingdom. He taught that future signs would tell the world that the kingdom is near. When Jesus shared the last Passover, the first Lord's table with his disciples, he said that he would not take this meal again until the kingdom was fulfilled, until we all met together once again. He told his disciples that the Father had assigned them a place in the kingdom. The thief on the cross even knew this. The thief on the cross begged for mercy by asking Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the man in whose tomb Jesus was buried, Joseph of Arimathea, he's described by Luke as a man who, quote, was looking for the kingdom of God. You cannot separate the gospel of Christ from the kingdom. Jesus is not just a nice guy who wants to make your life better. He is the king of kings and lord of lords, and the choice is either you serve him and live or you reject him and die. That is the choice of humanity. So when Paul is telling the Jews of the kingdom, no wonder from morning till evening he expounded to them. I've often read that verse and thought, wow, how do you preach all day long? That's easy. Preach the kingdom. Because the kingdom is all through the Bible. The kingdom is the theme of the Bible. Some of these ask you, what is the Bible about? That's easy. It is about the kingdom of God. He's offering to them to be a part of the kingdom by faith. And Jesus Christ, the king, and all he was doing was teaching Old Testament texts, which clearly point to the kingdom of God. Now, certainly this would be a point of contention because most of the Jews believed they were inherently already part of the kingdom by virtue of their DNA. Well, of course I'm part of the kingdom. I'm a descendant of Abraham. And Paul was saying, no, you're not part of the kingdom. You need to be invited in. You need to be a part. They weren't a part. And so, as you might expect in verse 24, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And man, now, now Paul addresses those who refuse to believe, and he doesn't say, I'm, I'm praying for you, or I, I'm hoping that you'll ask Jesus into your heart. Come back next Sunday, and we'll, we'll give you coffee and donuts and see if we can help you. Verse 25 And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. Talk about a sermon closing. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And he essentially kicked them out. He said, if you're not going to listen, I'm going to go to somebody who will. Paul is quoting from the ministry commission of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. That Isaiah was to proclaim the kingdom of God, proclaim repentance from sin to God's people, but they weren't going to listen. Now, in Isaiah 6, that appears to be really the strangest commission to ministry ever given to a prophet. 
tell the people to not understand, create an atmosphere of heart hardening and spiritual blindness. Seems very unusual. But that's not so much the message that Isaiah was supposed to proclaim. It's the effect that his message would have. And it's the effect that the message of the gospel had on these men here. I don't know if you noticed this, but as as Paul was quoting from Isaiah 6, the various parts of the body used to symbolize the spiritual deadness and the, the inability to understand of the people, they're arranged in circular fashion. There's the, the heart and the ears and the eyes and the eyes and the ears and the heart. In other words, all of you is not believing. You're not believing with any part. You're not believing with your heart. You're not believing what you hear. You're not believing what you see. And so was Isaiah, some 700 years earlier, was he trying to confuse people, trying to keep them from the truth? No, not at all. He was trying to proclaim, as the whole book of Isaiah does so beautifully, the message of salvation and the coming Messiah. But how did the people respond to Isaiah? In Isaiah 28, we see the pride of people in response to his message. They taunt him with a couple of insults in in two verses. The second insult in Isaiah 28.10, For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. In other words, Isaiah was teaching them systematically and with simplicity and with clarity. And really the goal of every good preacher is to make the truth clear, and that's what Isaiah was doing. And did they appreciate that? No. That's the second insult. You're teaching little details here, there, and here, and there. The first insult, a verse earlier in Isaiah 28, 9, to whom will he teach knowledge, and to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those who are taken from the breast? In other words, Isaiah, you're teaching with such simplicity, and such precision that you're only fit to teach kindergartners. You're only fit to teach little kids. You're just somebody who teaches babies. Have you ever read Isaiah? It's not teaching babies. But God said that that would be their response before Isaiah had ever preached a message. And Paul says to these Roman Jews, you are just like your forefathers who refused to believe Messiah. You're just like them. Now remember, this is all still while Paul is under house arrest. His concern for the gospel has overwhelmed his own situation. And now the entire reason for his imprisonment by God's plan and really the culmination of the entire book of Acts brings us to our third gospel opportunity. Our third gospel opportunity in verse 30. By the way, you'll notice in your Bible there's probably not a verse 29 That is a a highly disputed verse, which most publishers now do not include, and they are right to do so. Verse 30, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, all of a sudden, Paul's desire of Romans 1.15 is being fulfilled. What, What a different attitude that these people are having He desired to preach the gospel to those who were in Rome, and now he's getting to do so. As a matter of fact, we can see the wisdom of God in this plan. Remember that Paul is still awaiting trial. He's he's still under arrest, but God's wisdom is is so obvious here. And I want to give you some of the ways that, that God's wisdom comes shining through here. First of all, this has demonstrated the fulfillment of Jesus' commission to the apostles. 
His commission to the apostles has been fulfilled. He told them at his last words before ascending into heaven, at the very beginning of the book of Acts, all the way at the start, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Those are the last words of Jesus Christ on this earth. Meaning the gospel would start in Jerusalem and then go to the world. What happened in the book of Acts? Well, to briefly outline Acts, Acts 1 through chapter 6, verse 7 is the proclamation of the word of God in Jerusalem. Beginning in the very next verse, all the way through chapter 9, verse 31, we see the rejection of the word of God in Jerusalem. Beginning in chapter 9, verse 32, all the way through chapter 12, verse 24, we see the beginning of the acceptance of the word of God by the Gentiles, despite the, the attacks of the Jews on those who were proclaiming the gospel. Chapter 12, verse 25 through 16, verse 5, we see the official turning away from the Jews wholesale and turning to the Gentiles with the gospel. That Now the, the, the Gentiles are the focus. And then from chapter 16, verse 6, all the way through chapter 19, verse 20, again, we have this great acceptance of the gospel by Gentile cities and, and peoples. And Jewish opposition is now heating up worse than ever. And now the very people of God are the worst ones. They're the ones rejecting the gospel. And, and Gentiles all over the world are coming to Christ. Acts 19, 21, all the way through 23, verse 10, we see the rejection of the proclamation of the gospel by Paul, that, that he's being rejected. And, and finally, beginning in the verse that we read in Acts 23, verse 11, Jesus told Paul, you must testify in Rome. And now he's there. And what is Rome? For all intents and purposes, Rome is the ends of the earth. It represents all the nations. And how is Jesus making the proclamation of the gospel happen? Do you realize that Paul is basically sitting in one place and we have a drive-through evangelistic program where the whole world comes to him? And they knock on the door, next, proclaim the gospel, get saved. Next, proclaim the gospel, get saved. I mean, his travel expenses were zero. The whole world literally was coming to him for two years. And what would these people do? They would hear the gospel, and they would take it back to their home cities, their home countries. And they would spread it everywhere. There's a second way God's wisdom comes shining through. It was through this experience that the gospel of Christ reached the highest levels of the Roman Empire. Do you think the Apostle Paul would get a chance to share the gospel with Emperor Nero? It's not recorded in the pages of Scripture, but apparently he did. He never would have gotten that chance if he hadn't been under arrest. Philippians 1, 12 and 13, the Apostle Paul wrote, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, speaking of his imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And at the end of Philippians, I just, I love this. Philippians 4, verse 22 he says, all of the saints, all of the holy ones, all the saved ones greet you, especially those in Caesar's household. All of those that came to faith while Paul was in chains. By the way, it's entirely likely that Paul's original guard, Julius, became a believer, as Luke is very careful to name him and to note that he really liked Paul. Generally speaking, when the Gospels give specific names, it's because people in the early church knew those people. And 
Julius had no end of opportunity to hear the gospel from Paul. He was chained to him for months at a time. So he got an earful of the gospel. There's a third way God's wisdom comes shining through. Paul's imprisonment caused a huge ripple effect. It caused a huge ripple effect. Other believers in Rome were now emboldened to proclaim the gospel. They, they saw the example of Paul that, they would, that, that he would do anything for the sake of the gospel. At Philippians 1.14, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In other words, he was a hero to those who were proclaiming the gospel, and he caused boldness. Let me give you one more way that God's, God's wisdom comes shining through. It was during this imprisonment when Paul had time on his hands, when he couldn't travel, when he couldn't busy himself with anything other than waiting and waiting and waiting on the Lord. It's during this time that we get what are commonly called the prison epistles. He wrote Ephesians, which contains in chapter 1 the greatest Trinitarian passage in all the Bible. He wrote Colossians, which contains in chapter 1 the greatest description of Jesus Christ in all of the Bible. He wrote Philemon, which contains the greatest exhortation for Christians to forgive one another in all of the Bible. And he wrote Philippians, which contains in chapter 2 the greatest description of the condescension of Christ Jesus to come down to earth in all of the Bible. How many countless millions of people have come to faith in Christ because of Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon and because of Philippians? 24 little months of imprisonment to give us four of the greatest books of the Bible. Now, that's a really long way around to talk about your focus while you wait on the Lord to be faithful to the gospel. But I'd like to suggest to you four benefits to a gospel focus to being concerned for the lost while you wait, whether you're waiting for a family situation to resolve, a financial situation to resolve, a health situation to resolve. Sometimes, as we've said, things that you already know will not be resolved in this life. What are some benefits to focusing on the gospel? I want to suggest four. First of all, gospel faithfulness keeps waiting from being your focus. Gospel faithfulness keeps waiting from being your focus. Paul was waiting for trial, but that wasn't his main concentration. He, he wasn't biting his nails off in anxiety about his trial date. He was busy with other things. He didn't spend each day wringing his hands in anxiety. Instead, he was excited to share the kingdom of God in the meantime. So who can you pray for besides yourself? Who can you invest time in to proclaim the gospel? How can you serve in the church to, pro, to support the proclamation of the gospel in the meantime? Every one of you, to one degree or another, you're waiting for something. So you may as well not focus on that wait. Just because you're waiting doesn't mean you can't have gospel concern for your neighbor or, or teach children in children's ministry to proclaim Christ to them or, or be excited about eternal kingdom things that God is doing. I mean, the Apostle Paul wrote the Philippians, I'm so excited that my imprisonment has served to further the gospel. What an attitude. There's a second benefit. Gospel faithfulness keeps you warm and welcoming. Gospel faithfulness keeps you warm and welcoming. I have noticed sometimes, just to be direct and blunt, which I, I'm rarely direct, but gospel faithfulness makes you do the opposite of what often happens with Christians who are waiting. Sometimes they just become rude. 
Sometimes you become difficult to be around. Sometimes you become so focused on yourself that everyone else can go jump in the lake until your life gets put together. But gospel faithfulness does just the opposite. It makes you warm. It makes you welcoming. In the midst of his suffering, Paul didn't shut everyone out. He didn't say, leave me alone. I have to focus on this. His gospel concern led the way for him to have the spirit of a host who loves those around him. In fact, verse 30 even says he welcomed all who came to him. There he was, chained to a Roman guard uh, and and says, can you uh, pass the anchovy dip, please? Can you bring the chips over here? Let's have these guests. He couldn't leave, but he invited others to come to him. There's a third benefit to gospel faithfulness. Gospel faithfulness makes you more concerned about the future of others than the present of yourself. It makes you more concerned about the future of others than your own present circumstances. Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God. This is very future-oriented. This is, I, I want you to be part of the kingdom someday. You see all these surroundings. You see Rome. It's going to burn. It's going to go down. And you need to be part of the true kingdom because Rome is going to fall. The kingdom after that's going to fall. The kingdom after that's going to fall. And eventually the kingdoms of the earth are going to fall all under the judgment of Jesus Christ. Be on his side. He was more concerned for their future. He didn't cry over a situation. He was concerned for the souls of others. Here's a fourth benefit. Gospel faithfulness creates personal joy. Gospel faithfulness creates personal joy. One of his prison epistles, the book of Philippians, is often nicknamed the epistle of joy. When Christians are down and when they're depressed, we go to Philippians, sometimes forgetting that Paul wrote it while he was in chains. He speaks 14 times of joy or of rejoicing. From his captivity, with his great gospel concern and his love, he wrote classic inspired texts such as Philippians 1.25, having joy in the faith. Philippians 2.18, rejoice with me. Chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, you are my joy. Chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Chapter 4, verse 10, I rejoiced in the, in the Lord greatly. It's just filled with joy. What a wonderful benefit. If I can put it this way, out of all the messages that we're going to preach and have preached in strength in the desert, could I say that this is one I'm the most confident that I know that one of God's purposes for you waiting is to have a gospel focus because we're all to have that focus anyway all the time. So I already know that's a purpose. So for you to look in the mirror or look at a pad of paper with a pen and say, how can I be gospel focused while I wait? I already know that's God's will for your life. Absolutely is. Well, Paul was eventually released, but he was arrested again just five years later in about the year 67. And this time there was no house arrest. He was chained in a horrible prison. He was treated like a convict. And this imprisonment would end in his beheading just outside of Rome, the end of his race. But what a race he ran. What a race he ran. You know, the, the, the book of Acts is not so much the story of Paul the apostle as it is the story of Paul the prisoner. He spent a lot of time sitting in prison cells. And during that time, he always used his time wisely, and it was always for the gospel. I've counseled with enough of you 
to have heard many of you use the metaphor, I feel like I'm in prison while I wait. Well, the Apostle Paul is just the guy for you then. He's just the guy for you. Even when you're waiting on the Lord, be faithful to the gospel of Christ in any way you can, and I promise you it will make the wait worth it. And I can guarantee you something. I cannot prove this from Scripture, but I believe it with all of my heart. I believe that the day that Paul was released was a bittersweet day for him. Yes, he's free, but now that beautiful time of leaving who knows how many people to faith in Christ, it was over and it was done. Wouldn't it be great to get to the end of a time of waiting and be able to look back and say, I kind of missed that. I missed what the Lord was doing. So you wait faithfully. You be faithful to the gospel. Our Father, we thank you so much for including us in your plan, for putting tools in our hand, the Bible, the Spirit of God, the church, in order to proclaim the truth of Christ. And Lord, I am heartbroken, as I know you are, for those who wait, who suffer, who wonder if you'll ever move again. But we know you will. We know that you will be faithful. But we also know that the suffering that we endure really has very little to do with us. Of course, it's a sanctifying time. And of course, you're working in our lives through that suffering. But you have a bigger plan, and it's a kingdom plan. And you expect us, you've expected us to do what Jesus said the true followers do, to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, and to follow you for the sake of the kingdom. And so, Lord, I pray for those who wait. I pray that you would help them to be comforted, but not to look purely to the word of God for just emotional comfort and for relief from bad feelings but to straighten up and to be good kingdom soldiers and to minister through the suffering to, as athletes would say, play through the pain, to do those things that you have called us to do because all around us, in our own county, every single day, somebody dies and goes to the judgment of God. We have neighbors, we have friends, we have children, we have coworkers who are set to face judgment and so Lord in the face of eternity our own waiting our own little personal trials really are very very trivial and so I pray for those here and those who hear this message that we might be awakened to once again be like the Apostle Paul and to have a greater gospel concern for the future of those lost around us than our little present trials which he already said don't even compare to the glories that are to come We won't even remember how this felt. But we will see the reward of our gospel faithfulness moving on through and into eternity. We do pray for those who are waiting, those who are suffering, that you would give comfort. But we pray also you would give them determination to be effective kingdom citizens, that they would proclaim Christ while they wait. We pray these things for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen.